This week, we're talking with Dr. Robin about activist theology on Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. you got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about really whatever you want to talk about, because I believe every sincere curiosity deserves an honest response. This week, we're speaking with one of my heroes, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, about their work around activist theology. We've got a show to do, so what do you say? Let's get it started. Now, based on the feedback I'm seeing online, some of you are going to be really excited that we have a third interview in a row on Ask Science Mike, and some of you are mortified going, where are my science questions? But there's a reason for all of this. Uh, The people I've had on Ask Science Mike the last two weeks, Stephanie Tate and uh, Anna Jane Joyner, you know, they both had really time-sensitive things they wanted to talk about on the program. And that's also true of this week's guest, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, who is a trans queer activist, Latinx scholar, and public theologian whose new book, Activist Theology, comes out October 1st, and they're having a launch party September 29th in Nashville. I know I've got a lot of Nashville friends listening, and that's why I wanted to get you aware that this event was happening the same week this podcast comes out. So we'll get back to a more traditional Ask Science Mike format next week. Uh, But for this week, I want you to listen to this conversation. Now, there's a lot of people who listen to Ask Science Mike. Some of you identify as Christians. Some of you are spiritual, not religious. Some of you are atheists. Some of you don't even care at all. Some of you are Mormons. Some of you, you know, there's so many different religious identities. There's so many different political affiliations. And when you hear trans queer activist, Latinx scholar, and public theologians, some of you are going to get really excited, and some of you are going to get really afraid. But I want everyone to listen, because just like our conversation with Stephanie Tate that was faith-centered, I think this conversation, and in fact, this book, will be not only enlightening and informing, but restorative to every listener of this program. Wherever you think this conversation is going, you don't know until you listen. So without further ado, let's start our conversation with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. I am just so excited to be talking with Dr. Robin this morning, who probably uh, has no idea uh, what impact their work has had on me. Oh, Lord. I have followed you for years now um, in my constant search to be a better contributor to society and a better Christian. And that's weird for me to say because, you know, about half of the audience of this podcast doesn't identify as Christian and probably mm-hmm. uh, a quarter of them literally have no interest whatsoever in things mm-hmm. uh, in and around Christianity. But, but Christianity is very important to me. And your work as a public theologian 
has been incredibly influential in how I view the world and how I view right action and how I contextualize the changes that are good and necessary that society is going through. I wonder if we could start with like something relatively easy. Sure. Could you help um, a very mixed audience in terms of religious identity understand what a public theologian is? Oh, Lord, I'll try. I mean, uh, first, let, first, let me say that I am also skeptical of calling myself a Christian, because I think mm-hmm. in these days right now, Christianity equals white supremacy. And I have been very explicit about that over the past yeah. several years. Um, but like you said, Christianity is very important to me. And um, I've been socialized as a Christian. I have three degrees in Christian theology. I've trained as a Christian social thinker. Um, and I do this thing called public theology, which is apparently a thing that people do now. Um, I sort of stumbled in on it after um, I started my doctoral program. And really public theology is thinking in the public square. And I, I do it from a theological and ethical lens of, I believe that everything is theological, that um, the ways that we think about values and norms are driven by a sense of theological understanding or a spiritual meaning. And um, so I just tend to think in the public square and I do lots of theologizing and philosophizing on Twitter and, um, and Facebook. That's what I think public theology is. So I can imagine if we were in a room with all the listeners of the podcast right now uh, and you equate, as do I, uh, Christianity with white supremacy, I can imagine like a third of the room cheering, uh-huh. and a third of the room holding their breath in absolute terror. Right. Um, yeah. So would you mind unpacking that just a little bit for people who uh, maybe don't understand that connection today? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of um, come to this idea from theology and from my training that when we begin to layer over ideas of dominance, in this sense, nationalism, and in particular, white nationalism, when we begin to layer our faith claims with policies and politics and expressions, um, we get to a place where Christianity seems parallel with that of white supremacy. And, you know, if people wonder, well, what do I mean by white supremacy? Because someone recently asked me, well, what do you mean by capitalism? Um, Which I also think is racialized and disenfranchising people of color and LGBTQ people. But white supremacy is a system of dominance whereby there is a racialized hierarchy that puts white people on top and everybody else below. And white supremacy is not new. Um, White supremacy is something that's been happening for a long time uh, prior to the transatlantic slave trade. Um, But we see white supremacy expressed in this country throughout the past 200 years um, from slavery to mass incarceration and up into today. So um, 
I want everyone to breathe and take a breath. Uh, white supremacy is real. It is not new. I did not make it up. You did not make it up, Mike. Um, but it's a thing that is holding us all down. And we're either on the side of freedom or we are not. It's, it's mm. just that black and white to me. I think that's what drew me to your work and so excited me about your work and so confuses me about how to communicate your work with a lot of people who haven't done their own work, done their own study and done their own scholarship uh, to understand what terms like white supremacy means mm -hmm. um, or how one can be a public theologian who's skeptical of yeah. uh, being labeled as a Christian. But when I say your work has been influential to me, following you on Twitter, hearing you work through ideas and, and discuss ideas in the public sphere, reading the books that you recommend has helped me on that journey of understanding more the relationship between you know, the church today, especially the American church mm -hmm. and capitalism and white supremacy. And in the ways that those things combined are so antithetical, even oppositional to, you know, some of the tenets of the, the faith that we all claim to profess, which brings me to like what I really want to talk about with you today. Yeah. This episode is going to air on Monday, September 23rd, and there's going to be a launch party on September 29th in Nashville, and there's a lot of Nashville listeners of Ask Science Mike, uh, celebrating your book coming out mm. uh, October 1st called Activist Theology. Uh, yeah. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that book and what the genesis was and, and where you're taking the reader with it. Yeah, that book has been three years in the making, and as anyone who might be listening, maybe have tried to write a book or wanted to write, you know that the process of writing can take on many shapes and forms. And this book did that. I turned in a draft in December of 2017, and um, Fortress Press said, look, we like your work, but this is not the book that we want to publish. And so over the year 2018, I rewrote the entire book and rewrote it as story and, and basically took the reader through my own becoming an activist and not just an activist, but a theological activist and someone who holds divine doubt as a gift. Um, and I wrote 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 about being in Charlottesville in 2017. I wrote about resilience. I wrote about the silence of my white father who employed undocumented workers whom he called wetbacks. Oh and um, I basically spill the tea about my life in some of the moral dilemmas that I have struggled with. And I wrote it down and I, it's now in a book. <laughs> wow. What was that like revisiting some of those elements of your story to put on the page? You know, I just think that it's important to be honest. You know, everyone thinks, oh, you, you're, you're, you've arrived at these decisions at, at your politics without a cost. 
Mm-hmm. And it's really important to, to recall that there has been a great cost to me arriving at my politics. Um, the cost of um, being estranged from my father who, who died over 10 years ago and no one called me. I found his obituary online. And I write about that. And I write about that that's the ultimate silence. And I can never repair that relationship. And I can never go back and try to help him along. Um, so I write about the cost of what it means to, to live your theology and ethics out loud. Um, I, I tend to call myself a radical political theolog- theologian. And um, there's a cost to that. And people don't realize that when you are charting your own becoming, that things fall away. And for me, so much of the things that have fallen away have been my blood family. And when you then sort of piece together your life and your family, you realize that it's the people that you choose to do life with are the people who are going to be there for you. And that, that also comes at a cost, right? It was a, it was a great opportunity for me to really be honest with myself and with the potential readers. And there was a lot of grief that Mm -hmm. I went through when I wrote the book and just realizing like, Oh yeah, that was a thing. And that was hard. But I think the book, it takes the, it takes the reader on a journey of becoming and it's really a book for anyone asking the questions. And I, and I, I tend to think about myself as someone who lives the questions. And if you're asking the questions, maybe, maybe you will be transformed to live the questions. And maybe, maybe this is a book for you. I don't know. I am speechless. I'm actually speechless that, if people who listen know that's not a common state for me. <laughs> when I read about the book, and I've already ordered my copy, and uh, anyone else who wants to order theirs, uh, if you go to the show notes on AskScienceMike.com, there'll be a link to the book where you can just go ahead and buy it right now. Even while you're listening, you can go right now in your podcast player, tap the show notes, and uh, and buy this essential book. But based on the description of the book, I didn't realize that your story and narrative were part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so pumped that's the case. <laughs> yeah, Because for people who are, so many listeners of this program are former evangelicals and former theological conservatives and formal political conservatives who have this new dawning and growing awareness of some of the more insidious structures of our world that are held up by their previous identity mm-hmm. and they're so hungry to figure out what to do next. And when we offer resources and when we communicate uh, 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 readings and we communicate, you know, great works of theology and scholarship, it's often such a big lift at yeah. first because you're trying, you're learning all these new terms and trying to navigate these new things. But seeing that play out, in a first-person narrative with your life experience, that's so powerful. Like, I was already excited to read the book. Yeah. Now, the second it comes out, I'm clearing my calendar and reading it in one sitting. Yeah. Um, that is such a needed thing in our world. That's not a question. 
That's just me saying yeah, yeah. how excited I am. Well, and let me say this, and, and this may feel like a contradiction, or it may stump some people, and they may say, no, I'm not interested in Dr. Robin. But like the book is very evangelical in this in the sense that I am making an argument and I believe what I'm saying is the truest truth. Mm. And, you know, like I would never come out as a Christian, but I've been deeply formed as a Christian. And also I write about following the ways of Jesus in the book around love and compassion and justice. And in that sense, the book is a bit of a claim to even to being evangelical, but I don't mean it in the sense of conservative fundamentalist evangelicals where you have to have a relationship with Jesus or anything. Hmm. Um, and people have commented, Robin, this is so much more orthodox than what I even knew you were capable of. <laughs> and, and part of that was recovering the roots of my story. And I think that the the downside of being an ex-evangelical is that we tend to cut off the root system and we and we separate it you know and we don't turn back and what i did was i said no i'm gonna turn back and i'm going to recover that root system and call from that root system and see what is there um and i did that and i i talk as much as i can about becoming rooted in our story and sometimes that means recovering our past now i would never advocate for putting a person in harm's way i'm a big believer in harm reduction but recovering our story is some of the work i think that needs to be done so that we can be rooted and so that we can be grounded and i think a lot of us we don't have root. We don't have a root system because we've been so damaged by mm. the institutional church that that we cut off our root system. And so I mm. I try to advocate for returning to our roots in some capacity. As you say that and name that, I feel a grief and an awareness of the ways that I've cut off the roots in my own life. That's one of the reasons. I think your work is so important for those of us who were evangelicals and who have believed themselves to be white mm -hmm. and become aware of the relationship between white supremacy and the evangelical church. We cut off the roots because we can see no way to redeem them. And I think there's something I say a lot to my audience is that we should listen and we should follow the work of people of color and women of color and LGBTQ folks, especially queer folks and, and disabled people and other marginalized people who are doing the work of, of, of reframing and redefining the world of theology mm -hmm. because it is actually their perspectives that not only create a world where they can survive and where they can thrive and they can flourish, but remarkably actually also can in some ways lead the way home mm -hmm. for those of us who feel trapped between the way we present into the world and the way we've been socially indoctrinated 
and the way we want to exist in the world as supporters and on equal footing with everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love what you're saying here because I think that what I try to do in the book is talk about what I call the logic of dominance. And we, we have a dominant way of thinking about things, and it's usually informed by whiteness, culture of whiteness. Um, and when we begin to listen to the voices of the choir, as I, as I have said, it's texturized, right? The choir texturizes the narrative in a way. Um, and that's what I hope this book does, is texturize a little bit from my trans perspective, from me being a mixed-race Latinx, um, and from me being raised by a woman of color who is not from this country and whatnot. Um, I hope that it texturizes a little bit to move us out of the logic of dominance and into a vision for collective liberation. What role has queer theology played, both for you and in the book, in subverting that dominance? Well, I, you know, queer theology and queer theory is, is highly contested terms in the academy. And I, I try very hard never to define activist theology in, mm. in the book. Um, I gesture toward it and I, and I, I write about it, but I never normatively define it. And I think that is an influence of queer theory and queer theology um, in the sense that I'm not trying to own activist theology. I'm just trying to start a conversation. I'm just trying to contribute to the discourse because I think we can look at other places where activist theology has been written or, or it's bubbling up, but we don't name it as such. And I think the same is true for queer theology and queer theory, that there are, there's a way to destabilize the narrative by inserting the I. There's a way to destabilize the hegemony of the academy by inserting the I. Um, and that's an influence of, of queer theory and queer theology. Um, so it's there. But I, I just gesture to it. I don't, I don't really name it. What about the role that class plays in these systems and in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk very frankly about, and I'll just say it here because you're going to read it in the book anyways, but I, I talk about when I took my first faculty post in Berkeley, California. You know, I thought it was going to be an avant-garde place where I'd be um, sitting in cafes listening to independent music or poetry and talking theory uh, but my reality of living in California um, was I was on food stamps and on public health. And, and I just was very honest about what that experience was and what it meant for me to try to survive in a system where class ascendancy didn't work in my favor. So I write very honestly about capitalism and my own struggles around class and that it's, it's hard, it's hard to live. We, we live in a world where it is hard to live. That's one thing I think that people so often miss. Yeah. Uh, if you're middle-class, then there are a lot of times where you're trying to figure out how to get all your bills paid and, and, it feels like struggle and it is struggle. Yeah. I don't want to minimize those struggles. Yeah. Um, but the level of anxiety there is usually about um, how will my credit report look? 
Right. It's not about will I have food, shelter, safety. Right. And that the middle class experience is not actually the normative experience, even mm -hmm. in the United States. And we so often forget that. Um, we tend to in the middle class think there's like the middle class and then and then literal homelessness mm -hmm. and that there's no space in between. And when you look at the demography uh, around income in this country and around household wealth, uh, somehow the middle class is asleep to the economic reality of what it's like to live in America. Yeah. And when we forget that, it makes it impossible to have a genuine justice orientation in our life and in our faith. Right. Uh, gosh, what a remarkable insight you've shared with us. Thank you. Well, I mean, and let me just piggyback onto that. I I talk about our greatest social violence is poverty and that mm -hmm. we don't really know how to talk about poverty. And poverty comes in lots of different ways. Um, I talk about being saddled with student loan debt. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I'll ever be able to even attempt to pay every time I, every time I apply for income based repayment, it says you don't owe anything because I don't make enough to, to start paying on my student loans. Um, and we don't, we don't talk about that is about poverty. We have, we have created hell on earth and, and, and one of the expressions is poverty and mm -hmm. it is a social violence. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's sobering, you know? Yeah, that's something that's happening with me anymore is um, there's a time in my life where a statement like that would have rolled past and I would have felt awkward and I would have tried to jump forward and make good radio. And now I, uh, I just have to sit in grief for a moment. Yeah. I mean, this is where I... I'm like, it takes a village. We have got to start doing work together to start flipping the script on reality so that people can live, so that people have a chance, so that people can flourish. I mean, I'm deeply invested in human flourishing, but we don't have the conditions to at our disposal for human flourishing. What we have at our disposal is violence that comes in the form of poverty, of militarism, of war, of white nationalism and you know transphobia etc that that those things are creating conditions for death not for flourishing hmm. and we need to get our hands dirty is there anything else you'd like to share with uh with the listeners today i mean i'd love to hear what folks think about the book um i know that some folks won't like it and that's okay. Um, but I'd really, I'm genuinely interested in what people think about the book. Um, what do you feel? What, what is conjured up when you read it? Um, there's a lot of my story in it and there's a lot of reflection in it. And I'm really curious, you know, can, can we actually chart a conversation together? through being in dialogue with one another? Can we actually bridge our deepest differences so that we can create a better life, not just for me and you, but for everyone? I, I'm really curious about that. Dr. Robbins' new book, Activist Theology, is available October 1st 
basically everywhere books are sold. If you're looking for the next step in redefining and reclaiming your roots of faith, if you're trying to figure out how to come to terms with the intersection of faith and white supremacy and capitalism and what you can do and how to be involved in in creating solutions and creating human flourishing, I can't recommend enough that you pick up this book. Uh, I'd also recommend that you go to irobin.com. That's I-R-O-B-Y-N.com and see all the opportunities you have to follow Dr. Robin on social media, especially those of you in Nashville who can experience their work in person at the launch party for Activist Theology on September 29th. Dr. Robin, thank you for taking the time this morning. It has been an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much, Science Mike. Oh, there's a lot going on with Ask Science Mike. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, I don't know if you can tell this from your side of the table, uh, but downloads on Ask Science Mike have never been higher than they are right now. Uh, so there's a lot of energy coming back to this program that really excites me. And uh, part of that is uh, the fact that we have a great team of people working on it. So I'd like to thank Caitlin Hermstad for producing Ask Science Mike. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for directing and sound designing and editing Ask Science Mike. Andrew Galucky for his pre-production work. And all of my patrons on Patreon who make this show possible. I thank you not only for your ongoing generosity, but your new generosity. I've seen so many increased pledges and new pledges the last couple of months. Uh, I definitely feel the love. And I feel so honored to have the opportunity to talk with all of you every week. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.